0: hello everyone and welcome to the bootstrap founder today i'm talking to matt wensing the founder behind summit and tweeter of many often controversial things we talk about bootstrapping assassin the financial space how to deal with integrations and when to take funding even as a bootstrapper here's matt
1: it's amazing i feel like since uh, since we met in person you've become i mean you're you're like a you're like a Twitter verse uh, celebrity
0: at this point. It's kind of <laughs> totally it's kind of a wild legend. <laughs> <laughs> It's just no. a, it's bizarre. it's so weird. Well executed. yeah and, and, and it started it started on that fateful day that we met you know it was uh, honestly it's, it's really with with MicroConf Europe that little talk uh. that I gave. With Danielle on stage just about how we sold the business that was the day that I started to have kind of some some kind of reputation in the field you know credibility the thing that everybody wants yes yes from that I had like what 400 Twitter followers at that point now it looks quite differently uh, it's incredible we can have a
1: whole conversation about that because I I would love to do the same somehow but I I sort of am only doing it now as like a Byproduct of just working on my own stuff, but you've made a you've made a uh, you made it a focus, which is working out really well. So that's cool.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Let, let's just use this right away. I think like for for me, it has been a very surprising journey because I did not expect to do this at all. Like when when I went to that to that conference with you. And all the other people there, I I barely knew anyone in the field because I was just so focused on building my own business. And then we had the opportunity. I, I don't know really what happened. I think like there was a call for papers, but for these attendee talks, And it was Kevin from Shoresurf Capital, the the company that actually acquired us, who suggested that we should maybe give a talk about our journey to selling the business. And that was the only reason that I was on that stage with Danielle was because the people who bought our business told us this would be a great opportunity for you guys to, you know, just get in touch with the the community around you. And it was, and and from from there on, right? That's that's how it started for me.
1: There's kind of a there's kind of a there's kind of two things happening or two layers, at least one is you're a good storyteller because you're a founder and most founders are have to be. But then the other one is you shared a story, which is the most dreamed about story in the sphere that we're in. So it's sort of the how I became a knight kill the dragon and rescue the princess (laughs) is the story that everybody wants to hear and so you you shared the story that everyone wants to hear as a good storyteller in the right place at the right time and you also lived it so it was like you said it wasn't just based on like a fairy tale it was your actual uh experience so you yeah you, you really uh the dart flew through all the rings and hit the bullseye is what I, is what I think happened.
0: So that's great. I, I, I guess for, for an audience building journey, that definitely was the biggest bang possible in the beginning, right? To have yeah. like both the stage of microconf, which is already reputational and the story of having, successfully built and sold a business yeah, I, I feel very very lucky like for, for those stars to align and then meeting mm. wonderful people like you and hanging out you know like having conversations and, and understanding that there are more people like me out there and that I would like to connect further with them which then led me on this whole path to, to using Twitter as a platform but you use Twitter as a platform too right I, I see mm. well you, you have juicy tweets let's just say that like you have very <laughs> interesting sometimes occasionally contrarian tweets I just love that I love the the way you communicate on twitter and i wonder if that is just a personality thing with you or if there is like an actual intention of of teaching through that method like how, how does that work for you because you also are amassing a, a sizable following there right yeah it's so oh,
1: so my most popular tweet ever was one that i uh i wasn't being as intentional it was basically here's the six things that i'm not going to do this time around starting my second company and, you know, it wasn't like crazy viral, but 2,000-something likes and and 1,000-something retweets. Um, the second mode, so, and I think I realized when I did that, that, so first of all, I don't use any tools. I don't draft things 99% of the time. I, occasionally, I have a thought. I'm like, eh, this isn't fully baked. Let me save it as a draft. But I don't schedule things. I don't draft things in that, in that sense. I don't use any tools. And... Almost every time I publish, it's literally me walking down the street with, with the dog or, you know, sitting at a game um, or something like that. And I just I just have a thought. I write it down. I send it and I just and I just do that. And so somebody said, well, what's your strategy? I said, I literally just tweet my thoughts and it's it, it's really f- it's really me going, oh, that's a thought. I'm washing dishes. And then I'll just kind of turn that thought around a few times and go what's the interesting part of this? Is it this angle? And then like, what's the best way to say this? And then I'll just go. And so it's usually like maybe a two minute or three minute just moment in my life where I have a thought, I I mull it over, and then I write it out and hit send. And so the reason that I write so many tweets is literally, I I guess my brain is just kind of uh, pretty
0: active. That's right.
1: (laughs) yeah that's the strategy so i just wanted to share that and and the reason i discovered that sort of non-strategy strategy strategy was when i sent that tweet out that went crazy (laughs) i was literally like in my you know i was at home and it was like off hours if you will uh and i i had this thought i hit send and i remember looking at my phone a second later and seeing well this is getting a lot of likes really fast uh that's interesting and It it was just sort of a... Then only later I discovered like... um, Because I I think I had maybe 1,500 followers when I first started Tiny Seed uh, back in 2019. And I have over 7,000. And I feel like that's a pretty good... That's a pretty good clip. Um, Yeah. And I think the... I think the strategy is working and not as well as yours if you just look at the meteoric rise, but it's working and it works for me. So that's where I'm at.
0: (laughs) And and I guess that's the whole point, right? Because you attract people that you want to attract with that strategy. And I love this because this strategy is essentially foregoing all kinds of external strategies and just taking your internal whatever comes and bubbling through your mind and you know (laughs) sticks with you that is already like pre-validated and we should talk about validation because you had a juicy tweet on that too but you know Uh. it (laughs) it comes up to the surface and then it's ripe enough to share obviously no thought is ever fully done right but i see you using twitter as a as a thinking tool like for some people yes. it's merely an audience yeah. building tool but but you you think and then you have conversation around it is that intentional or is it just happening because it's happening so so that is that is intentional
1: because i and i tell people i work with this all the time um i don't have an inner monologue i just i don't I, when i when i'm walking around or when i'm thinking because i think this is the s- most surprising thing and i didn't know this until i was in my 30s so i'm 41 now but it's, it's, I, I learned that other people have like this voice that's just talking to them or saying things in their head. And that's how they think. That's how they process things. Um, since I don't have that, I typically think in I will like see things. Uh, I'll dwell on them. I'll just kind of I'll see a picture. Literally, in my mind's eye. I'll see a picture and I'll just kind of dwell on it and think about it but non-verbally how does it make me feel what's related to that it's kind of like this game of what's related and uh, I tell my daughter this and she was just stunned I'm like yeah. she's like no no but like when you're driving down the street you know what's going on in your head like I see a stoplight <laughs> it's red yeah the rain is hitting the ground I- I'm not even thinking it- she's like I don't understand this at all <laughs> the reason I mention all this is I use therefore I use external communication to process my thoughts, I I have to verbalize in order to process. And I've learned throughout my career that I have to explain this now to people because I will otherwise be in meetings or in conversations with people, and they'll be wondering, they're like, when is he gonna get to the point? And I'll ride, I'll take them on this carousel, you know, all the way around. And then I'll finally go, and so therefore, you know, but halfway through, I'll have people go, I. I think you're on a tangent and I have to explain to them. No, no, no. I'm just like, I'm just gathering up all my thoughts and then I'll get into one place. And what you're seeing on Twitter is basically me going through that journey. And, uh, sometimes I'm at the start of it and sometimes I'm sort of a conclusion. Sometimes I'll just do the whole thread where it's like, okay, let's go on this journey together, but I, when you said, is it intentional or not, um, these thoughts It's really the only way for me to process and refine my thoughts because otherwise it's all nonverbal.
0: That makes sense to me. Also, it lends itself wonderfully to recording hour long podcasts, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's super it does. helpful. Because yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm like, in you saying that, it just reminded me of the fact that I also have, I, I kind of think I have some sort of voice in my mind, but it's by far not as prevalent as for other people. Like, I can get distracted and have these kind of movies happening in my mind, like while I walk down the street, but that's not the same. I don't have a narrator. I am kind of the, the thing that I think think about. I, I feel the same way. For me, it's not just in um, t- tweeting. It helps me too, but writing long form, like forcing myself to kind of take the thought out and then reading it back in, that is how I kind of bridge this gap because I don't yeah. always have external people to talk to. So I kind of write it and then read it to myself. Like, Oh no, that's wrong. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, looking at my own stuff. Do you, do you, um, do you write? Because I, I see you tweet, I see you do the podcast and I see obviously you're building a SaaS. So do you have time for that? Yeah. But do you write long form? Does it help you? <laughs> anyway
1: uh i did write long form between startups so between my last startup and this one i wrote a series of maybe five or uh, let's just say six to ten essays um and they got they, they were very um helpful for me to really figure out what i should do next um and i gave a few talks at conferences a so business of software is a place I've, I've done a few talks so i think talks and long form essays are ways for me to more fully develop ideas and establish expertise on something. And um, tweet, tweeting is my way of, like you said, running a SAS and also publishing. I do have this thought, though, and it, this works well for me because my memory is also very uh, um, auditory. So I have a, my auditory memory is good. So it's funny. I, I, I don't hear like the voices, but when I say things out loud or when other people do, I tend to remember them. Um, It means that I can search my tweets. I I love, I can go find a tweet because I remember the words I put in it. I remember what I said, you know, a long time ago. And if I did more long form, part of me is thinking, you know, I could probably write a chapter of a book on just by going through and searching for like product strategy and all my tweets, because I've written like 30,000 tweets or something crazy. This I could probably find like 10 or 20 tweets on product strategy and then kind of seed something, you know, Mm -hmm. which i might do that at some point
0: well i guess you're busy enough with with summit as it is right i I remember when we first met in in 2019 (laughs) late 2019 Summit was rather new and you were just like exploring around for me at that point if i remember correctly it was a forecasting tool that's pretty much what it was and now looking at it it's this whole platform of you have like the summit event language you invented your own modeling language too right like all that stuff feels like it has grown quite a bit which now that you say how you think it's a very iterative process right you go from step to step to step to step and then you arrive at the end kind of seems to mirror your journey with the business how how's oh that gosh. been going for you over the last couple of years how's summer? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that um wow that's incredible you know Every once in a while somebody says something that's extremely perceptive and, and, and like you are a perceptive person, but that's a really, that's true. What you just said is very true. And I almost want to just like recognize that, yes, I, I iterate on my thoughts and I see building startups as really a search for, it's a search for product market fit. As we all say, I I do believe that I'm one of those people that thinks that that's, that's a real thing. I've experienced it before it's hard to find but it's a search and therefore it should be iterative i think that this is often at odds with the perception that i think is most rewarding for people i think there's a very rewarding um perception of the superhero or the superhuman who knows what to do does it and it works and they never have to go back on their Ideas, Everything works the first time. And so that's that's narrative. That's um, hindsight narrative, right? It's 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 a beautiful thing. And then there's also the people who just raise, you know, 50 million dollars and can buy a story that supports their ideas at all costs. I am not those. I actually I really enjoy the journey. I love the search and I also am very public with it. So with Summit. If you go back to 2019, you can basically read a tweet per day on, um, maybe not every day, but on the business. And I would say it's been a iterative, it's been an iterative quest and it started with this core modeling language. But then I've basically been, we've been wrapping layers around that to get to the point where the end thing is, um, the end thing is usable by as many people as possible for as much value as possible, which is a very generic way of saying we still haven't fully arrived at that touch point between, you know, what customers really need and what we provide. But as I was tweeting last week, I'm, I'm a couple things have changed. One is we know who our customers are. Uh, and we know what they're what they need and we're willing to give it to them even if it means doing some amount of services some amount of custom development some amount of work to bridge that gap and just discover okay, the last mile if you will between product and market to get that fit dialed in and i wasn't willing to do that for a couple years because i did not know for sure that we had found our customer and i think the important distinction that I want to make is I think some founders begin with a product and they go searching for the right market for it and I think some people start with a market and then they go they try to and then they work with that market to figure out what's the what's the most amazing product I can build for you. Yeah. And there's a lot of confusion that happens when you cross those right. advice streams Yeah, that's
0: true because oh, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> if you take advice from somebody who has their customer figure it out and they're just trying to figure out the product, And you put it alongside advice from somebody who's like, I have this invention, I have this amazing product, it does X really, really, it does X 10 times faster than anything else in the world. Who should I sell this to? Those people are like, what are you talking, you You know, it's very confused. Of course, you sell it to the person that you started out wanting to build something for. And then the person's like. No, I, I didn't build it. For, I built it for me. I I, I built it because I I wanted to compress something 10 times faster. I did, but now I'm trying to figure out if I should be selling this to like Apple or oil companies or teachers. I, I don't know who to sell it to. And I am definitely the inventor in search of the market. And I think some people are customer first in search of the product and um. The iteration therefore takes on a different shape depending on which direction you're coming from, I think.
0: Well that's a great explanation of how you've been going from w- having this idea which is a great idea and I I th- I think that the scope of what Summit could do is almost infinite right it's a it's a forecasting tool for whatever like you yeah. coming out of forecasting you know what forecasting is and how forecasting works and how it can be applied to all these these different things like from weather to financial markets there is so mm-hmm. much going on so yeah. obviously inventing the tool to be able to serve all of this that is a great feat now making money of that is a whole different yes. game, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's closing the gap between invention and
1: commercialization. And there's whole, you know, there's whole departments at universities who are called the commercialization group who helps PhDs and inventors with patents or discoveries figure out what's the commercial application of this thing, right? And I don't consider myself an academic, but I definitely am more of the scratch your own itch type of entrepreneur who is likely to build something because I love it. And then I try to figure out who else loves it and is willing to put the highest, you know, who gets the most value out of it as well. Right. And that's been the journey. And we started out, this might be helpful for listeners. Like if, if you're taking that approach, what we did was, um, we went from, so I'll be very concrete to start. We went from internal operations at companies. So we were thinking the finance department of companies who need to build forecasts and financial models that, that that was our target customer. That was sort of ideal customer persona candidate numero uno. That was the obvious choice. And two things changed. One is we went from internal to external. We basically said, well, wait a minute. What, when you, when you're done making this financial model, Don't you want to share it? Don't you want to give it to others or let them use it? Well, if that's the case, then you probably, you have like an audience, you're publishing something. So I was like, okay, but that's, that's interesting. That's true internally. But if you're sharing something internally, couldn't you also share it externally? Like, couldn't you build and publish a model that is designed for other people to use? Like, yeah, that's true, but wait a minute. Do internal finance, op, do financial operations people generally share what they make with the world? Right. No. Well, who does, right? And so just even that one, I like to think of it as like uh, turning the Rubik's Cube, right? If you're trying to find the market, turning the Rubik's Cube and saying, what if we go internal to external, you know, is just one dimension you can rotate and flip or invert, right? And then you go, well, who does? Who are these people that create things? And you go, wait, marketers like to create and publish things? Salespeople are constantly selling and, and persuading the world to look at their... Oh, well, what kind of models do marketers and salespeople make? Well, they don't really call them models, but they call them calculators. They call them ROI you know, calculators, or they call them um, you know, reasons you should buy my tool, or they call them lightweight lead magnets you know you look at something like hubspot and they created their uh what's your score for your for your website what's your seo score it's like okay so when marketers make things that are mathematical they are doing it to publish it for an audience and and so we ended up going on this whole journey of of rotating from internal to external and that's where we're finding fit now which is really completely unexpected but fun it's like We built a low code tool for people to publish mathematical apps. And it turns out the most underserved folks for that are not people who live in Excel all day, surprise, they have Excel and they're really good at it. It's the marketers and the salespeople who have almost no access to engineering resources or very limited and they themselves don't consider themselves to be very technical oftentimes, unless you're, you could be both, but a lot of them don't. And so. They need a low-code platform for publishing mathematically rich little apps more than anyone. Oh, they value it more. And so then you end up in the scenario where you go, cool, I think we found people that value what we've made the most. And I think a lot of people just go cross-eyed when they think about that. Like, what, what, why didn't you start with marketers and ask them, what are, your, what are your hardest problems? And then build the product to solve that. It's a fun thought experiment to think if I started with, say, a growth director at a fintech, who's the kind of person that really loves what we built at this point, and said, tell me about your hardest problems and how can I solve them? I don't think there's many worlds in which we would have started building a modeling language. Right. <laughs> so so it's, it's not actually a two-way function. I think if you start on that side, I think you actually end up building very different solutions and applications. Yeah. Um, And what you tend to do is you tend to focus more on revenue and pain points sooner, I think. And, and I'll, I'll say it here is kind of first, this would normally be a tweet, but this is an example of kind of thing. I do think that the indie hacker and bootstrapping crowd, I think tends to index more heavily on find the customer and build something to solve their problem because it is a faster path to revenue. Because you literally have somebody who's sitting there telling you that they have this pain, and if you solve it, they'll pay you for it. Versus, I'm going to build something that I love and think is really cool, then see if anybody will pay me for it. Yeah, that's right. It's much more risky and kind of at odds with the bootstrapping approach yeah. of, I need money tomorrow, so what do you need? I'll build it, right?
0: Would you have done this as well if Tiny Seed hadn't been part of your journey that, that particular way?
1: I... No, I don't. I don't think so. In fact, well, actually, let's let's tease it since we have a moment. So let's tease that apart really quick. So when I raised money from Tiny Seed, I was a solo entrepreneur, second time founder, who was building a what I thought was kind of a fifty dollar a month, more turnkey SaaS lifestyle business, and I was trying to sell it to founders because I live this problem. And I just figured if this can make a few hundred thousand dollars a year i'm happy okay right and, and this will work and that was actually what i approached tiny C with and i think you know they knew me enough and they knew what i was working on really the going deeper the let's invent a language and let's go deeper was really enabled by pursuing that and then hitting a wall and going okay i've got a couple people paying me a little bit of money they want some integrations i could do that but is that all this can be could this be more powerful is that flexible enough and what i realized was that some users would be happy but then in my in my customer conversations some users were like what you have is cool but i really need to be more flexible and so what what tiny seeds money allowed me to do is pursue the first i would say horizon of customers which were I'll give you $49 a month. If you can just tell me what my revenue is going to be next year. That's neat. I like that. I need that. The additional funding that we raised along the way allowed us to go, how do we expand the market and go after a broader set of people, which is sort of the, it's sort of how the, (laughs) it's how the story goes, where you, you sort of get, um, you saturate what you think your opportunity is and, and to be clear, we didn't build it up to be a saturated thing where we had thousands of customers paying us $49 a month. We kind of got a few and realized this probably won't grow to the scale that is really exciting for me personally. So I I need to grow the market. And that's where, you know, that's where tiny seeds money kind of ran out. And I went, okay, so now I can either... Continue to build this into a lifestyle business, which might make a million dollars one day, maybe. Or I can raise more money and try to grow the market to, or, or improve the product, so that these other people who are kind of like eh, on the fence would also subscribe. Yeah,
0: it's a it's an interesting example of how just a little bit of cash invested into a business that is at that stage can make a whole lot of difference just for the trajectory of what you experiment with, how how comfortable you feel also building out the thing you have and then you pivoting one, one thing I would like to ask here at this point, are any of these $50 customers still with you or did you pivot away from them?
1: One, let's see. One of them was there. We fired all of our customers in a very, nice way that's my horrible way of saying it but we yes, basically told them great,
0: that the, great the product
1: is going away yes exactly the product is going away uh we're rebuilding it we'd love for you to subscribe to the new thing and we do have one paying customer who was a customer then who's a customer now nice and that's uh that's satisfying meaning he stayed for the whole journey um maybe skip the middle part a little bit uh but yeah a, a little bit but the product has gotten so much more horizontal. And externalize that most of those people, they might still be experimenting with it, but um, they are no longer the
0: focus. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. cool it's it's i think one of the fears that every founder has is that if you make a change to your product do i lose all my cash do i lose all my revenue right but, and <laughs> yeah. that's why i'm saying like money helps like having external money a little bit don't have like you have to have millions to do this right you just have to know that for a couple months you can experiment a little bit longer right it doesn't have to be the 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 moonshot kind of money did you feel different like um in terms of the risk you could take with your business when when that tiny seed uh not just the money but also the net the mentor network came in i did well so
1: i i have a very very um different view of of risk than many so i at the, at the end of the day, I truly believe that most of us that can build products from scratch and start companies from nothing we're either I understand we're incredibly non employable in a way in a way yep. but but I also believe that most of us and now you know economy allowing can find work if we need to. We have skills that are monetizable, let's put it that way. So I never really feared, a a disastrous situation where I wouldn't be able to provide for my needs or my family's needs. It was never that. So what the tiny seed money really let me do is say, okay, I can, I look at, at raising money as investing down into something in order to increase the upside. So it's, it's meant to be, put towards things that are creating leverage for you, right? So I I didn't want to just take the money and make the thing I had 10% better. I wanted to take the money and make the thing I had potentially 10 times better. And so I I took on a lot more risk because I had the money, but I also see that money as venture capital. It's really there so that you will take some extra risk. Because if you don't, you probably should have taken out a loan or something instead, right? And that's where I'm at. So I, w- I would, if I'm going to raise money by selling equity, I need to do something that's increasing the value of the business significantly. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, I shouldn't have raised that money.
0: It sounds sounds scary to me. <laughs> you know, just just <laughs> talking to you as a as a founder from my perspective, having, having not raised intentionally. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love to have the control. Also, I knew that there were limitations in not having that money available. Like, you have to mm-hmm. make month-over-month month kind of choices, but it felt um, the choices that I make that are actually bringing in more revenue, well, they are good, right? I don't need to kind of... Stop making these choices. I'm just going to keep continuing growing my business. But I see obviously that if you have this perspective of uh, risk in particular, if you, if you look at risk that way and see that as VC money, which in my mind was always millions of dollars, but you're right. It could just be a couple tens of thousands, right? That is also in venture capital because you can go on the new venture. I'm just uh, (laughs) reframing my own perspective of VC here. So thanks a lot about, uh, just mentioning that. That is really cool. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. MicroAcquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. MicroAcquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same, to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join acquire.com.
1: Yeah, I I I also agree that if, you know, angel investors and friends, if you will, are and I think tiny seed is more friendly to you getting an outcome that is not, it's its not—it's—it's—it's literally not about all or nothing. It's supposed to be a take some risk, but nothing's wrong with building just a great profitable software business because those are valuable on the market. You can get a multiple of revenue for those because they are high margin and they tend to stick around. The, the thought about it being venture capital, though, for me is what it allows you to do. I've thought about this. So I, for those that don't know, I did bootstrap my first company for five years. So I, I know what that's like. I also, then we, we didn't succeed at raising a series a for our last, uh, for my first company. So we had to go back into boot effectively self-funding mode. We cut you know, reduced salaries. We went through a lot of pain and then we ended up being profitable again on the other side. Um, I've been through the whole journey of, and with this time around, I experimented a little bit, and then I sort of immediately raised capital. And the the reason is I just want to be able to work on things that require a higher wager. I I, I think you get to the point where you're like, okay, to to really place a larger... To get a bigger outcome, we have to place a larger bet. And if your appetite for betting is limited to one month's runway or next week's paycheck, or maybe even just, yeah, I can spend $500 on Google ads and see how it goes. You eventually get to the point where you say, okay, I've got a lot of market feedback and signal that if we build this mobile app, or if we do this thing, you know, I've, I've done the mockups, I've done the tests, I've done the landing pages, I've done the interviews, I've done my homework, I'm not doing this blind. But at the end of the day, they still need a product. But you can't do it because you need to pay somebody $10,000, $20,000 to build that thing. Finally, that's very painful. Like I've been there too, where you go, I actually truly believe I know what the market wants, but I don't have the resources to proactively invest in that. And it means that I kind of have to let somebody else seize that opportunity, you know, and that's fine. No, no, no harm done other than maybe a little bit of regret of going, I wish that had been us, or I wish we could have seized that because we saw it (laughs) and we knew it was there, but we just couldn't, we couldn't take a risk. Um, and that's, it is what it is, but I, I really have a hard time. Um, like that creates, some regret for me i've actually had to see that happen in my past and kind of this time around i wanted to be able to know that i left it all in the field as they say or whatever expression that you know i i did try to i placed all the bets that i knew to place as smartly as i could and even if none of them pay off at least i wasn't constrained by the inability to invest in testing that you know um you know, you can afford more tests when you're, when you're funded, that's really how simple it is. And right. and if you can, if you can do that with customer cash and profits and sort of, you actually can fund all of your tests and ideas, right. just purely based on revenue. I mean, congratulations. Yeah, right? Like good, you, for you. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. You know, but my experience has been not having funding means that you, there's a lot of stuff that's below the line and yeah. you just go, that's unfortunate because, um, I think if we just had a little bit of money, we could really, we could really knock this out of the park. You know, that's
0: yeah, you nice to be able to do. Yeah, definitely slower to do these things because it just takes more capital coming into the business. Which, if you are bootstrapped and revenue focused, then it just takes a couple months to grow it to that point, or years even, right? So, yep. if you're competing in a in a red ocean that where people have a lot of money to put towards these things, that is a drawback. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not, if you're in a less red, bluish ocean, then that's, that may be fine. But then you have the whole problem of you, now you have to figure out what actually to build for people to keep... Uh, You know, sustaining your business with revenue problems either way. But thanks for sharing this, because I feel (laughs) uh, as in my own experience, and I think many experience of the founders out there that are bootstrapping, that are putting their own money into a business, they are super scared to lose it. Right. That's why they want to. That's why they start with the market and figuring out their problems and then solving them with a very clearly a budgetable solution that is not a moonshot not a shot in the dark not a thing that they want to build but a thing that other people need so they can immediately monetize it and you know you said earlier um how how tiny seed allowed you to to do these little things and and saturate the one idea and then go to the next one that sounds remarkably like rob walling's stair-stepping approach which is unsurprising because you know he's kind of the yeah. guy so it, it, it allows you to go to that next step have the security to go to that next step and be a bit more adventurous, right? Not fear for your life because particularly living in in places like the states where you know money or insurance and health are all kind of extremely expensive and then doing risky stuff i mean I, i remember us talking at some point and you mentioning having being in in financial hardship too like building things because there was no cash and you house was you have to pay a mortgage and you have to bring the kids like through college and all that kind of stuff Phew, that, that frightens me even to think about. Do you have any ideas like how you could de-risk that stuff as a founder who doesn't necessarily have the, the access to capital or access to even to the reputation that you had to get into Tiny Seed?
1: Yeah, no, uh, well, I, I lived that. Uh, so w- when I built my first company, like I said, we bootstrapped for the first five years. And I wanna be really clear, what bootstrapping meant was uh, nights and weekends to start. I had a software development job, I had ideas i listened to podcasts i started working on it i also had a one-year-old so time was limited which meant sleep was the sleep and time with the family sacrificed both so it's it's very expensive Um, you end up spending capital that is physical and emotional instead of financial because you need the financial capital from your job to uh, you can't sacrifice that right and and there's no adventurous person saying, go ahead, spend my capital to discover something great, right? There, there, there isn't that person in the equation. So that, to me, is the hardest thing to solve, because you, I, I agree, nobody's truly bootstrapping. And that's another thing I want to say. I went to a great college. I had parents who paid for it. Um, I graduated with very little debt. I graduated a year early to avoid some of that debt. Mm-hmm. But then I also had a job with no health insurance. When we had our first child, I had to go find a job that did. I was in and out of jobs, depending on how my first startup was doing. Oh, I can make enough to pay the bills. Let me quit for a while and then go back. And then, oh, we have another kid on the way. Let me go find a stable thing again. And so it was very turbulent. And obviously, there's a whole nother uh, series of episodes you could talk about you know, with someone like Sherry Walling or others about the psychology and and relationships and family and all of that, that you have to maintain. But purely from a hustle standpoint, the only thing, the thing I did was I said, what do I have that I can sort of burn that isn't money, right, that that can somehow start a snowball here? I'm trying to, you know, to mix metaphors, I got to get something started. And what I discovered was I was pretty good at pitching and I was pretty good at storytelling and speaking. So I started to apply to pitch contests, having no experience fundraising and having no experience public speaking or pitching like that. But what I, what I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to grow my network and I wanted to get in front of more people. And I just believed that social capital was something that I could accumulate even with no financial capital. And the only way I could do that was to do what other people weren't willing to do, which is put myself out there, speak publicly, and travel a little bit. So for a $150 plane ticket to Atlanta, I would go... I would fly from Florida where I, where I, was, where I was starting this company, spend $150 on a plane ticket, go up, maybe spend $100 in the cheapest hotel I could find, you know, safely. Go give a spend all day at this pitch contest present a pitch you know get fifth place out of 20 doesn't even really matter maybe an honorable mention or something but then i would spend a couple hours talking to people and go oh where do you work where do you work who are you what are you doing and then i would go back and it would be like well how'd that go well okay so i have a lot more business cards back in the day and i have a lot more email addresses i could email and now people are know who i am and they're they're talking some somebody out there is talking about this thing and i did i did a lot of those and it was the kindling for my career essentially because what i started to learn then was as you said capital isn't acquired through i hate to say it it's not acquired through just hard work it's acquired through exposure and social capital because those things create trust and trust is actually the currency of the whole economy, who, you know, who gets money and 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 when and why and all of that, even your company getting acquired, if you're not putting yourself out there, you're missing out on a whole part of this equation. So being super scrappy and essentially making ends meet just barely, uh, and credit card money, the only thing I had left to burn was my time and energy and my, um, ego (laughs) to basically put myself out there and start to speak. And that actually led me to being able to fundraise for the first time. So I pitched, I also ended up pitching over a hundred investors for the first money that I raised and learning by fire how to effectively get an investor to say yes. And that changed my career, but it started with this dude, nobody had ever heard of, being willing to just put himself out there because that was the only really capital. As I keep saying, that I had uh, everything else was unavailable to me.
0: That is awesome. That that is such a interesting strategy to start out with. That is so focused on building the right things that are not money in a world that is, is essentially about money at the later point. I right? Like any any kind of economic endeavor is. At least measured in in money at some point, but yeah social capital and and uh, reputational just yeah just a reputation for being a person people can trust and then over time start trusting. That, that is genius. And I would like to talk to you, talk to you about trust because I feel we live in a, in a world, like it's on social media in particular, but also in, in a diverse industries that we are in that, uh, are showing that trust is important by its absence. I, I would like to talk to you about the shit show that is web three and crypto. <laughs> like at this point, because I'm just thinking <laughs> I, we, we are co- constantly surrounded by that stuff and. What what is what is your perspective on this? And being somebody who is in predictions and who understands like industries and how they move and forecasts that people have given years ago about the uh, boom that will be crypto and and NFTs and all that weird JPEG stuff. What, what is your perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: it's so I, I want to be fair to uh, my. I, I want to be fairly harsh correctly harsh on myself to say, I, you know, I don't see all things at a time. There was definitely a period in 20, 2019, 2020, where I was pretty excited about crypto and uh, Web3 hadn't been coined yet. I, we weren't really calling Web3 it was just Ethereum and crypto. And that was because of the, the co-founder of my first company had always been telling me that I should get involved with it. And once I had my first exit, meaning my, my first startup was acquired, I had a little bit of money to start experimenting with alternative assets and I started to try it and you know, literally just dumb luck it was also a great year for crypto so i i started to get drawn into the atmosphere of it and start to think okay what this is pretty exciting this is pretty cool and who doesn't like making money that feels great to see your net worth going up literally by the minute um depending on which minute you check but generally up into the right most of the time yeah. most of the time that year and i but Having some background and, and experience with uh, being burned enough, I, I, I frankly, being hurt enough, if you take lessons from being burned and hurt in, in these places, it, it does two things. One is it, it can make you very close and cynical to new opportunities, which is a bad thing. But those antibodies are still there to question things and just be willing to be a little bit more rigorous and skeptical of human nature and what's going on here. And so I I do think that you have this incredible technology, which is weakly understood by most people. And I think that anytime there's something new that people are in a frenzy about, it always pays to try to become an expert in it on a deeper, more fundamental level. Like, do you really understand what this is? Um, Kind of the Warren Buffett approach of like, if I don't understand a business at its core, I don't want to invest is important. That is a level of not trusting, but is required. That's what, what is due diligence? So this is actually maybe a a different way of looking at it. Due diligence is a process that people are supposed to apply in a situation where trust doesn't get them all the way there, right? It's, hey, uh, Arvid, I really appreciate that you want to invest in Summit. I know. I think that you're probably everything's fine, but I'm going to but because I only met you twice, I'm going to ask a few questions, right? That's healthy and it's normal and nobody should be offended by that. But emotions are extremely hackable and emotions are extremely potent. And if you've ever gotten a phone call from somebody that says your computer's being hacked right now, I need you to go to this website. (laughs) You know, there's always going to be a group of people who know how to socially engineer things to hurt other people. Sadly, that's the world we're in. And so obviously hindsight being 2020, this is what ended up happening. And I think that's the always going to be the case number of humans that are trying to take advantage and exploit a good thing for harm of others. I think the other part of it though, is, um, understanding that we are living, this is sort of my more meta comment, I think we're living in a time that's stress testing, centralization versus decentralization. And this is not just with currency, this is with countries, <laughs> this is with populism and federalism, this is with you know states and, and United States, States of America, United States of America. This is, this is happening everywhere. And I think that we are currently, the pendulum has swung Well, at least it did up until maybe two weeks ago, swung very heavily towards decentralization is obviously the answer because centralization has bred the likes of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and the surveillance state and all of these things. True, but it's also the reason we have the United States of America. It's also the reason that we have, you know, groups of people. MicroConf has attend you know conferences where there's thousands of people there. Would you like it to just be all completely scattered so that we don't have that? There's benefits to centralization. And I think what um, commentators like Ben Thompson of Stratechery have said that I really enjoy is at the end of the day, all decentralization still needs somebody to centralize the benefits for the average person. Right? Interesting. I, I think centralization has to occur on some level for other people to benefit. And that centralization point, that aggregation point, that use user interface, that layer will always be a target for exploitation or hacks or whatever. And, and that's, um, that's a trade off. In other words, we can only have a president if we have a national election therefore we have to have a national election day and machines that exposes us to a great vulnerability but the only alternative is to not have a a a orchestrated sort of national identity right so if you want that we have to have that and i think the the same thing's happening in web three and crypto where people are going we want the world to participate if you want the world to participate then you have to have things like openc and ftx and coinbase because they make it accessible for everyone else to participate. And I think there's always going to be that fantasy struggle where people go, but it's not that hard to just memorize your seed phrase and put it in a safe and whatever. Excuse me, have you? do you not have a family member who has called you parents? for tech support? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, who has called you for tech support? And yeah. and, and I think... Part of me really empathizes with those folks because why I am the inventor at my core as well. I love a new technology that can be applied. And where do I struggle? It's often the adoption gap where I go Ugh, for the average person to use this, which I need to build this vision that I have for a big company. I actually have to make this usable for normal everyday folks. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you got to build what they want and they don't want to go to seven places. And I think the pendulum then swings back and you end up with people going, I love how easy it is to trade crypto on Coinbase. <laughs> and yeah. and the, the web three folks are like, ah, that's not the vision that we had. You're creating this thing. And you go, yeah, but that's the only, my my mother-in-law needs to be able to reset her crypto password by calling a one 800 number. It just is what she needs. And I'm sorry that wrecks your purity mindset, but that's how you create Apple. That's how you create Google. That's how you create Facebook. And I think what people are seeing right now in Web3 is sort of this, the denial phase of, but we weren't supposed to create banks without regulation. We were supposed to create the decentralized banking infrastructure of the future. And then you're like, that's fine but the average person is still trying to get their paycheck in advance from their bank and they need their password reset. <laughs> That's where we are. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, so. It surprises me that people forget that there needs to be this transitionary period too, like where mm. people come from one way. And then go, you know, into the new technology. I mean, I I wish I knew more about how cars happened. You know, that how the not not just how the technology around cars happened. I understand, like th- there were horses and there were buggies, and then people m- mechanized and, and automated that, or energized the the buggy. But I would like to, uh, to actually know more about the the societal transition at that point, or trains, right? Where people were afraid of trains that went faster than the speed of a human or a horse because they thought their innards would be spilling out that kind of stuff like that you have to address that right it's not oh yeah trains yes. are faster. use trains like, ah! like, like, nobody would would do that um i feel the same the same with any industry
1: exactly i i and actually that's the other i'm glad you mentioned that because uh so i do a lot of road tripping in the united states i love getting out on the open road and driving around because i think if you really want to answer that question or think about that deep. Go drive, don't just fly over places and land, don't just go from Seattle to San Francisco, and I'm picking up places now, but you know, Austin. You know, drive from Austin mm-hmm. to San Francisco and understand that I understand, you know, sure, maybe only 30% or 50% of the world's population is in between these two. But what decade are they living in, really? And when you mention things like the, the automobile they're still dealing with the repercussions of highways being built in the 1950s and sixties that have caused their towns to collapse. And that's the technology transition. They're still going through as a, as a group of people. And now you're saying we're just going to drop a Bitcoin ATM on the corner. And like, that's how you're going to, I don't, I think what's happening is society is actually um, I think the word is distending. I think what you're seeing is I think a smaller and smaller portion of people are living in some era or maybe on the bleeding edge. And that group of people is getting smaller and smaller. And I think it's like a comet. The the tail of the comet is the 98% or 99.9% of people who are actually living in some technological age that's way in the past for those other people. You know, they're still living in the 80s or the 90s. Was it? Half of America doesn't have, half of rural America doesn't have high-speed internet yet. So that, if you want to talk about true technological advancement for society at large, explain to me how you're going to help those folks catch up to, to you, who is dropping acronyms on a Twitter space that I consider myself cutting edge, and I, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know you, you, you know, no idea, you've lost me, right? And I, I'm trying. Those people, you know, they'll never get it. and um, I guess the to conclude my own thought, like what you can end up with is sort of like, um, from what I understand, places like India where they actually skipped landline te- telecom technology and they went straight to cell phones being the dominant paradigm. I think that perhaps one day, web3, crypto, et cetera, could you somehow airdrop no pun intended like that new invention onto people and they skip wire transfers and and robin hood and a bunch of other stuff that's like maybe in between they they basically go from the 90s to the 2030s in a a jump maybe but if that does happen there's going to be a lot of pain that falls out of that because you don't just skip whole eras without you know some kind of shock right
0: yeah the, yeah, tra- transitions are always important just for people to to not be left behind. I think that's important. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm really glad you said this. Like this, that that you need an intermediary. You need some kind of centralization because I, I see this um, also in, in the creator economy field a lot. That there are so many creators out there doing their thing, and there are a lot of people who want to consume whatever they want to see. Like if it's movies or music or uh, really thinky tweets that we put out all day. Like <laughs> it's, it, it's it's hard to to catch up with a real-time medium in the first place, right? It's hard to just stay on top of things, which is why there are curators all over the curation. place. I mean, we, we call them influencers. Yes. We have no problem and we might ourselves be that for some people, right? You and I yes. at this point. Yeah. Yeah, some people will listen to us when we talk about <laughs> things or when we give recommendations, right? That 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 already is a curation of attention and focus. So If that is already happening in a field where people are self-proclaimed cutting edge, I consider myself that too, and I have the same uh, problems understanding certain acronyms on on certain Twitter spaces. Like, (laughs) how much worse must it be for people who are not part of this community, not even interested in the things that this community is talking about? Right? How how are they supposed to be part of this technological revolution? Particularly in a democracy, we have the the problem that people. Can just be told what to think or what to do. If you look at China, which is a great example that you just gave, like with the, te- the leap in technology, when we went there in 2018, all we saw on the street were electric cars and people paying for street food with WeChat Pay. Like they wow. had the, the street food guy <laughs> who had just this little cart that was like one of his only possessions. You would go there and you couldn't pay in cash because he would only take WeChat Pay. Which was yeah. bizarre. Like it was bizarre to, particularly as a European who is very cash centric back then, right? We were still living in Germany, which doesn't really have this credit card culture. Um, we kind of skipped that. So it, it, it's super weird. It's like every part of the globe skipped certain different parts of of the yeah. technology yeah. space. And we went yes. to China, and we saw everybody, even like the farmers from the hinterlands, essentially using WeChat Pay and WeChat to communicate with each other, and as, it is such a bizarre thing to, to see that how in, in a country like that, where it can be kind of put into people's lives from the top there, it works. But in a country where people have a lot of Liberty to choose what they want to participate in and whatnot, you have a, a way bigger spectrum of how far people have transitioned already. So if you're building a business in China, you probably have different kind of regulatory things to to think about than if you do it in the states or in Canada, where I live at this point. That that and, and if you want to build a global business, now all of a sudden you have to kind of juggle both of these. Yay!
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, you hit on a great point. I mean, this is um, I, I studied a, a little bit of um, Russian history uh, in school. I was kind of my major, but it, in, in some of these cultures, especially going back today you will adopt this new tech paradigm or technology could be a state centralized decision and therefore adoption is 100 percent right guaranteed and guaranteed <laughs> let's actually take that out of politics and just even apply to mobile technology for a second one of the p- things that mobile developers from what i understand uh, having worked with a few would really enjoy about apple is the market adoption of a new ios version is almost 90-something percent within 30 days of it existing. Try that on Android, where it's more of a democracy. You think decentralization is great until you try to push an update. And then you realize that this means I now have 7.9 million customers and 47 different states or versions of things to deal with. What I really want as a developer is rails and standards and platforms that I can count on to say, yes, we know that only 1% of our users, when they hard press on this icon, won't get the new menu that we just created. But within 30 days, it'll be 100% because Apple is pushing this update out on everyone. There's always going to be somebody who's like, I can't believe Apple made me download this update. I don't want to do that. But look at how progress gets distributed to most people. You can't, you can't ignore trade-offs. Right. And well, that's the trade-off I, we're dealing with.
0: Well, then, as somebody who's building a platform yourself, how, how do you look at platform risk? You know, because I look at platform risk, like going on Twitter, potentially losing my audience if there's another weird mishap in in that particular business or building something on top of Ruby on Rails. And then it gets discontinued for some reason, you know, platform risk exists on many different levels. Since you're building one yourself, like how do you look at this from both kind of sides?
1: Yeah, it's so I think the better way to look at it is how many platforms are you going to be building on not are you going to build on a platform because it's turtles all the way down as they say and you know we're on aws so if you start counting the platforms we're on (laughs) and heaven forbid you look at software dependencies and open source and all these things there's a lot of packages i need people to keep maintaining Mm -hmm. ideally um so platform risk i think if you unpack that it's kind of terrifying uh but let's let's not unpack it beyond the aws level for a second so choosing your host is a big it's probably the first level decision that people need to make and i've talked to some founders and i chose this third or fourth runner up to the big three not i mean understand the the choices you're making but even beyond like that level the cto of of my first company i always respected Mm -hmm. his decision to not use specific features of aws like use our this 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 function tool program thing does everybody else have the equivalent thing that's the first decision you're even making before you even get farther down the path and it's amazing how many folks will go yeah i'm going to use that it's like okay you're probably locked in then and maybe that's okay maybe that's okay but you've already now made at least one platform choice then you kind of you have to just keep layering essentially and you go if I'm building on, so here's here's then the real, so that's sort of foundation level. At the at the top, you need to understand if the platform you're building on is a platform or an aggregator. M- meaning, they're in it for themselves. You are merely a nice little petri dish for them to discover what people really want. And when they, when you do that service for them, they're going to discontinue the API, they're going to say that's no longer in their terms of service, and they're gonna bundle it into their core product because they're not a platform. Bill Gates had this great uh, response to Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook at one point. Mark Zuckerberg was like, oh, we're this platform, this platform. (laughs) Bill Gates uh, basically called BS on that and said, that's completely not true. He said a platform is measured by the economic value of the people building on it being greater than the economic value of the platform itself. Windows is a platform. Facebook is not a platform. It is a social media network. It's making a ton of money off advertising and it's letting game developers build nice little things on top of it to attract more people to its core business. And if they ever figure out how to make a better game or they figure out that gaming isn't really great for them, they're just going to turn it off and that's what they do. So if you really believe that this is a platform, great, go for it. But the receipts on the platform being a true platform is what is the economic value of all the companies building on top of it. So Shopify is a platform. I'm not convinced that every company that starts with S is a platform. (laughs) I'm not convinced that, you know, um, Amazon is a platform. The number of AWS economic value is less than all the companies built on it, obviously, but that's a big litmus test. And that's why when I look at things like notion Stripe, uh a few others where they go we have apps now inter intercom you know mm-hmm. sure they have apps you can build apps but until the value of intercom's apps exceeds intercom itself intercom is less beholden to the apps than they are to their own mission and they might just decide that that cool feature you that cool app you built is actually a feature and if you won't allow yourself to be acquired, they're just going to build it themselves, right? That's an aggregator. They want to aggregate everyone's attention and all of the money. A platform is this unselfish endeavor, if you will, to lift up the infrastructure for everyone else. And so I think it gets complicated too, because even some of these businesses like, like Stripe, for example, they have APIs that are platformy, use our credit card processing API to process credit cards. That smells, walks, and quacks like a platform to me, so I'm gonna call it a platform. Definitely the economic value exceeds, they're just skimming. If you look at something like Stripe Apps, where it's like build a Stripe app for our dashboard for our customers so they can see their MRR in a new and exciting way, I don't know,
0: because that seems pretty <laughs> it seems pretty kind of ancillary and- yeah. Even the tax pretty... calculation they did, right? Like that, that kind That's of- That's a perfect
1: example, yeah. yeah. If Stripe were truly a platform, they would have said, we're so glad that a tax calculation company has built tax calculations on Stripe. Everyone should use that. Just like Microsoft would say, everybody should buy Photoshop. It's Windows compatible, right? It's never in Microsoft's interest. Rarely is it in their interest to go buy Adobe (laughs) or make that a part of like we have paint, but it's not really competing, right?
0: It's awesome, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but It's awesome, though. But that's the idea, you know. True platforms are saying, "How many gaming companies can we help create? How many how many tax cashes can we create?" I think platforms are this kind of more um, outwardly focused, and platform risk gets created when founders build on companies that aren't actually platforms. That's the biggest advice I would give.
0: I like that. It's a really great distinction but between something that fosters innovation and something that absorbs innovation. These these are very yes very, yes
1: that's very a good way to put di- it.
0: distinct ways of like dealing with your clients or customers, right? If 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 they yeah, if you want to empower them or if you want to be empowered by them, <laughs> huh. that's right. Very very interesting. Wow, I, I think we're slightly out of time at this point, but man, all good. This, Thank you. This could have went on for for a couple more hours. I I didn't get through like. <laughs> one quarter of the things I wanted to talk to you about. I guess we better have a a secondary conversation here at some point. Um, I'm extremely thankful for you sharing your thoughts here. And I love the way you approach thinking about something verbally. I just, it resonates with me a lot because you take me on this little journey and the journey ends up where I wanted to end up. I couldn't ask for more. Thank you so so much, Matt, for uh, an hour and a couple minutes of a wonderful, wonderful conversation. If people would like to hear you talk more or read what you have to say where do you want them to go
1: yeah uh, go ahead and follow me on twitter at matt wensing and i would love to engage with anyone there Um, that's my favorite place to be when i'm not uh, just walking around the real world
0: thanks so much for being on i love your work i love your thoughts and i'm really really grateful that you spent some time with me today thanks thank you arvid thank you and that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The bootser Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Avitkal A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me and the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Get the podcast in your podcast player of choice and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com founder. Any of this will help the show. So thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.